phone or via email. It's got to take all the travel time from Ephesus to Corinth and back before he hears if this letter was well received or not. And so, uh, so here we're going to discover that Titus comes back with the response and we'll see Paul responding to these things. But as it does so, there's two sides that we can focus on. Paul talks about and demonstrates his own heart in writing this letter, why he wrote the letter, what he was after, what he was trying to do. That's what we'll look at this week, loving confrontation. And then he also celebrates what happened in the church in Corinth, celebrates their repentance, and that's what we'll look at next week. Um, it would be best for us to, uh, to read the whole of these two passages through, especially because, like last week, one is in the center, and the other is in the beginning and the end. And so we're actually going to look at the beginning and the end of this passage this week and the middle next week. But if you would, uh, look with me at verse 5, and we'll read through the end of chapter 7. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true, and his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Let's pray. God, whenever there are two human beings in relationship, there are two sinners in relationship. And so we sometimes very much meaning so and sometimes uh, not meaning so, we hurt one another. We cause division in our relationships. We selfishly choose against those we love. And we thank you, God, that you have given us the means and the tools to reconcile those relationships, to remove the obstacles we set between our love uh, in sin uh, and to restore relationships. We know that Jesus called us to be those who seek out 
and forgive. We know that Paul calls us in this letter to be ministers of reconciliation. So I pray, Lord, that you would equip us to do so this morning, that you would make us sensitive to the places where we have been blind in our own sin, and that you would help us uh, to see where you're calling us deeper uh, into this ministry of reconciliation this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lately, I've dealt with a swath of different books, and they have hand da- hands down been the most difficult biblical books I've ever dealt with. Okay? Uh, Numbers, which we just finished uh, on Sunday nights, 2 Corinthians, and then I'm teaching for a class at a local Bible college, Song of Songs. In terms of structure, these books have been the hardest I've ever encountered to try and organize and follow the thought and see the argument the whole way through. The problem with 2 Corinthians is what I already told you, that we don't have all of the conversation. We only have Paul reviewing aspects and then responding to things. This problem is true in 1 Corinthians too, but it's a lot more present in 2 Corinthians. In fact, um, what we get to here finally resolves a missing component that started all the way back in chapter 2. Commentators famously call this section all the way from chapter 2 through chapter 7 the great digression. Because if you're not paying attention, it seems completely off topic. I'll show you what I mean. Turn back to chapter 2. So at the end of chapter 1, Paul says... I didn't come back to Corinth as planned because my last visit was so painful. Now, look at chapter 2, verse 1. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart And with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Now, notice what he says in verse 12 of chapter 7. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. From there... He moves on and he starts to do something, like I said, that commentators label a digression, chapter after chapter, and he doesn't return to this short little travel narrative that he starts here um, in Ephesus, doesn't find Titus, and moves on to Macedonia. He doesn't return to that till our text this morning in chapter 7. But everything that falls in between is focused on laying out the big format of those things, and so... Um, it's very helpful to, once we've looked at our passage this morning, to go back and read through what was said, to see how he lays out his own heart and his own ministry, how he defines what he's trying to do as a ministry of reconciliation. All of those things are built in to what's going on here. What I want you to notice, though, is effectively here, Paul writes the letter and comes to an agreement with Titus, okay, come back and meet me here in Ephesus, and Titus doesn't come. Like I said, this is the ancient world, so travel plans have a tendency to go sideways. 
Uh, even if you read the book of Acts, you'll see this taking place where they plan to leave in the season and then the weather's too bad, so they're stuck. Things like that happen. But nonetheless, he moves on uh, to, the, to the next city, uh, to Macedonia, and it says here that he's so distraught about this, even though there was ample opportunity to preach the gospel in Ephesus, what he calls an open door, he says, I couldn't do it. I couldn't keep my mind on the work. I was so concerned for my relationship with the church. And so then when we turn forward to chapter 7, we get to the coming of his friend Titus. And he says in verse 5, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Okay, do you see that? So he says in Ephesus, we were without rest. And even when we got to Macedonia, we were still in conflict, waiting for Titus to show up and to meet us there. But as we go along and we look at what Paul says here, uh, we start to understand what loving confrontation looks like. Okay? Paul wrote what he refers to earlier in the letter and uh, here in this passage, a severe letter. Every time I read that, I think of that old song, a tear-stained letter. That's what this was. It was a tear-stained letter. He was hurt by the church in Corinth, and he wrote this letter to set things right. And as we see in this passage, he recognizes that this was going to hurt them as well. Okay. But this letter is what leads to the restoration of their relationship. You see, the thing is, when I say the word confrontation, we all wince. We're not really into confrontation. We don't like confrontation. And when we say the phrase loving confrontation, that almost sounds like a contradiction. At least it's a paradox. What could that mean? How could confrontation be loving? But notice, back in chapter 2, that's exactly Paul's reason for writing. He says in chapter 2, of course, I was still in chapter 2. Uh, he says this in chapter 2, verse 4. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Okay. He says this was out of the deep reservoirs of my love for you that I took this action. You see, the first thing we need to understand about why we would bring up someone else's sin, why we would confront them, why we'd sit somebody down and say, hey, listen, we need to talk. Whether about a sin in our relationship or something we're observing that's damaging them, why would we bring that up? The answer has to be love. So let's look at our text this morning and I'll show you, um, I'll show you what this looks like. Notice again in verse 5. Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. Okay, and so he says, when we got to Macedonia, it was pain and it was suffering. Now, that pain and suffering didn't begin in Macedonia. We saw it in Ephesus. He couldn't even work in Ephesus. In fact, it goes all the way back to when he left Corinth the first time. Okay? Paul's pain begins in Corinth with his mistreatment from the church. But I, what I want you to notice is that he chooses, he chooses 
to carry that pain. He chooses to. What he could have done is gone, this is insane. Should I remind you, church in Corinth, that I started this church? Should I remind you that I was appointed by Jesus Christ? If you stand against me, you stand against Jesus. Those are Jesus' words. Forget you, I'm gone. But he doesn't. He gets away, he clears his head, he thinks things through, and he writes a letter. But in writing the letter, what we see is that Paul is hurt. The phrase he uses is that he grieves. And the first thing that we have to do if we're going to figure out how to deal with sin in our relationships, with sin in other people's lives, we have to be hurt by it. It has to bother us. It has to get under our skin. You know, can I put it in a different phrase? We have to care. We have to care. And a lot of times, we downplay the seriousness of other people's sin. We ignore it, and we call that loving. In fact, we we feel like the best thing we can do is just let people be what they are and be where they are, and if it's too hard for us, then the loving thing to do is just to leave them to it. But for us to really love involves being hurt by other people's sin. I mean, let's just point out the obvious, that like I said earlier in my prayer, if we're going to be a relationship with someone, that person is going to fail you. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to be selfish. They're going to be sinners. And so anytime we're in relationship, we are vulnerable. We put ourselves at risk. Okay. What I want you to notice this morning is that the confrontation we're talking about is also a position of vulnerability. And that's easy to mistake. Because oftentimes, confrontation is on the offense. Or at the best, it's a defense. Because everybody knows the best Offense is a good defense, right? I know in sports it's the other way, but when it comes to relationships, the way we hurt people is by isolating. Okay? The way that we keep ourselves safe is by making distance. But Paul is grieved by what's going on here. And what makes it loving is not that it's causing him pain, but why he is pained. He's grieved for them. He's grieved for the relationship as a whole. He takes the pain of the sin, and instead of going, you hurt me, I'm gone, he takes that hurt, and he's hurt for them. Listen, the Bible says that sin leads to death, and that means a couple of different things. Okay? One of the things it means is that the consequence of sin is death. That what we deserve, because we've broken God's commands, is eternal consequences. But another thing it means is that nothing can survive a constant exposure to sin and thrive. Sin leads to death. And so sin that's undealt with in a, ref, uh, in a, a uh, relationship will kill the relationship. And that doesn't matter if the relationship is a living death. It doesn't matter if it's chosen just to live uh, like a marriage that's gone south, like roommates with no interaction, just some sort of treaty that's been signed so there's no longer attacking, but there's still the elephant in the room. 
There's no marriage left there. There's no love. There's no peace. There's no joy. There's no unity. That's what sin does. That's what it does in our relationships. That's what creates the tension of the human life is if we're going to be in relationship with others and we're going to let those people down, how can the relationship continue? And the two choices we generally choose between is, well, the relationship's not going to continue. I'll just start a new one. So some of us are very familiar with this pattern, and we've got a history of broken relationships. And when people sit down with us, we can label all the reasons why they were wrong, and then them, and then them, and then them, and what they did to us. But the common denominator, the, the red thread that runs through all of it is us. Right? We see this kind of in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, Noah and his family are the only ones who escape this worldwide consequence and it's very clearly a consequence due to sin it's God's judgment on the earth and Noah makes it through that and then we find in his family awfulness sinfulness Noah's drunk he passes out in his tent and at the very least his son makes fun of him for it but it could be something even worse than that whatever it is the story of mankind's downward spiral of what we call the fall continues. Why? Because sin gets in the, on the boat with Noah. And I've been there and I've met people before who were constantly on the run thinking that if they can just find a place where there's no bad people, everything will be fine. And not only do they find more bad people, but they don't realize their own badness that they carry with them in their own bodies. And so we can't just sever our ties entirely and escape from it because we carry it with us, but we also can't ignore it. And this is, this is like um, the American Guide to Relationships number one. I'm sorry, it's okay. Right? That's, that's the lubrication that greases most of our relationships is to downplay. It's no big deal. It's all right. Don't mention it. Forget about it. All of these things, they take something that the Bible says is actually really bad. Not really bad, like really, really bad, but is in actuality bad. Something that is in actuality wrong. Something that actually bears bad consequences in lives and pretends that it doesn't. And the truth is, we are terrible actors. So we can say that, but it changes the relationship, doesn't it? We start to build the fence a little bit higher. We start to withdraw a little bit. We start to slowly and quietly punish them and remind them of how they let us down. We do all of these things. We become bitter. We become judgmental. We, we become resentful. We come to the place where maybe even we justify our own wrong behavior because they did that to us. And they can go, well, I have to live with them, so at the very least I can whatever it is. That's why I like the physicality of those chains. Ignore them all you want. They're there. They're interacting in your relationship. What are you going to do about it? The Bible says because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, there really is such a thing as forgiveness. It's not a feeling. It's not merely psychological. It's an actual transaction. Like with debt, it's a removal of debt. There's a psychological feeling that comes with debt. Since most of you uh, are Americans, you probably know what that feels like, right? You don't actually carry with you a negative balance, but you do carry it, don't you? Sin is the same way. 
We feel that distance. We feel that grievance. But what Paul does is he takes that and he sees it for what it really is. Not just an offense against him, not just a pain against him, but something that hurts the relationship and the other person as well. And he cares enough to do something about it. There are plenty of people out there who don't mind if you continue in your most destructive behaviors. But that's not loving. They don't do that because they love you. They do that because they don't care. Paul cares. And that's where this has to begin. If we really care about other people and about what sin is doing in their lives or what sin is doing in our relationships, then we have to do something about it. And so what does Paul do? Obviously, he writes this letter. But here's what I want you to notice in verse 7. He says here he was comforted. That's kind of spoiling the plot. And then halfway through, he says, As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Here's the second thing we see. Not only was Paul willing to be in pain, he was willing to cause it. He says, even if my letter hurt you, I don't regret writing it. Now, let's just deal with something very obvious here, okay? That's sometimes because that's what the letter was intended to do. Oftentimes, when we respond to other people's sin, when we react to it, when we bring it to their attention, our agenda is to hurt. It's to cause pain. It's to balance out the scales, to even out the scoreboard, right? And so we take somebody's sin and we react to it so that they feel the pain of their sin so that we feel justified, so that we feel right, okay? But when Paul says here, verse 8, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I did not regret it, listen to his reason. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter uh, grieved you only for a little while, as it is I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Okay, here's the point. He doesn't take joy in their pain. He takes joy in the restoration, which requires some pain. The distance there is huge. The difference between those two things is pronounced. In fact, he even confesses here he doesn't really want to hurt them. And the thought of hurting them, the thought of reading that letter made Paul feel the pain afresh again. But effectively, he says, nevertheless, it was worth writing. But he also says the reason he sees it was worth writing is not because it caused them pain, but because their pain ended. You see that? I rejoice that it caused you pain because it only caused you pain for a little while. Here's a paradox of life. Generally, sin provides joy temporarily and then provides sorrow. But what we're talking about this morning, loving confrontation, when it's done rightly, reconciliation, forgiveness, it provides sorrow temporarily and leads to joy. And so here, here he doesn't come on the attack. Let's take his metaphor from chapter 5. Notice what he says in verse 18. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I want you to notice two things here. He says, God's given us the ministry of reconciliation, and he says it's as if we're ambassadors. Okay. Here's the thing. For you to lovingly confront someone, you have to come representing Christ and not yourself. Here's how we often react to other people's sin. We react as if they were citizens in our kingdom. We say, you broke my law, you've fought against my kingdom, you will bear my judgment and my punishment, I will be judge, jury, and executioner, okay? But what Paul does is different than that. He doesn't come seeking revenge, he doesn't come on the attack, in fact, he comes already aware of the fact and wishing he could do it without pain. He is thinking about the other person. He is doing this out of love for them and not for him. And the truth is, you cannot, be, you cannot come in this way as an ambassador of Christ's kingdom and be a king of your own. You can't. You can't be a double representative. And so, this is why Jesus says this. He says, why do you complain about the speck in your brother's eye and ignore the log in your own, right? And a lot of times we just take that as a, hey, don't judge other people. You know, we've all got problems. Yours, we all know, are plenty big, so leave everyone alone. But we miss how he finishes that statement. He goes on and says, first, deal with the log in your eye, and then you will be able to help your brother. It's a priority, not an either-or. First this, then that. And the truth is, a lot of the times, the log in our own eye has to do with our own idolatry. That the thing that's most offensive to us about sin has nothing to do with what it says about who God is, has nothing to do with God's kingdom, has nothing to do with the other people created in the image of God and what sin's doing to them. It just hurts us. It bothers us. We're the center reason. So one of the ways that we deal with the log in our own eye is we ask the question, why did that bother me so much? Why do I react so strongly to that? What's really going on? We have to remove ourselves from the throne of life that says, I am the most important thing in life and you have stood against the most important thing in life and you shall pay. That's what's really going on. And so we have to remove the log from our own eye. We have to deal with all of those things. We have to take ourselves off the throne of our hearts. In other words, we cannot call someone to repentance until we repent ourselves. It's incredibly rare for humans to respond to sin and not respond in kind. It's knee-jerk. It's the way we naturally react, and it can, it can spoil this, doesn't it? Right? Because you can come self-righteously stoop down off of your throne and you know hold out your scepter and say forgiveness is available if only we've all been on the receiving end of that that's not what Paul does 
He comes in stupefying humility. Read the last few chapters. He stoops down so low, he has nothing to lose by kneeling before them and imploring them, begging them to be reconciled. His dignity isn't on the line. He doesn't care for that at all. His reputation, he doesn't, none of that stuff matters. All that matters is the relationship. How did he get there? He knows that he's a sinner and he deals with his own heart first. I think that's probably the primary missing thing in how we respond inside the church to other people's sin. We don't take the time to do what Jesus advised us to do. And so we either go, you know, um, well, it's, it's two things. Here, here are the wrong ways to handle other people's sin. One of them is called bitterness. Bitterness means you refuse to let it go. Bitterness means it becomes not just a defining trait of that person, but a defining trait of your life. Bitterness is when you take the word victim and you staple it onto your shirt and you live in that identity. It's when you replay the tape of what happened over and over again and you envision the argument you could or should have and it grows and it grows and it grows and it becomes a part of you. Now, bitterness doesn't always manifest in proactive action. Sometimes it's entirely internalized. Sometimes it's only conversations not involving that person but everyone else. But what does it do to the relationship? It kills it dead. The other way we respond is in judgment, in vengeance. What we say is, I'm going to find a way to make you pay for this. And so we might do that through attacking the other person, through tarnishing their reputation, through telling other people about their sin. We might do it through holding it against them and setting it as a new standard that they have to prove and earn our love. All of those, we, we act in judgment. And the truth is, before we can forgive someone else, which is the goal of loving confrontation, we have to do something vertically. We have to surrender our place as judge. And that's actually really good news. Because what do you do when you're bitter and the person you're bitter against is dead? You still carry that bitterness. What do you do if you want the re relationship to be restored and they're unwilling to be restored? There's only part of this you can do, but you can still experience the reality of what we're talking about if you recognize that forgiveness is first a vertical commitment and then a horizontal transaction. A vertical commitment meaning that you stand before God and you say, I am going to be willing to forgive this. I am not going to continue to hold this or to hold it against them. But for the relationship to be restored, there needs to be a following transaction, and that takes two people, which means there's a part of it that you can't do. But you cannot do the second until you do the first. You cannot continue on to write the letter with the right heart unless you have the right goal, and you'll never have the right goal as long as you have the wrong one. Okay? And so he writes this letter, and he knows it causes pain. Here's the thing. Confrontation is a tool. It is not the tool that is bad, but the motive. Think of a scalpel. Okay, a scalpel in the hands of a doctor is a very positive thing. A scalpel in the hands of an attacker is a very negative thing. They both inflict pain, but one seeks healing. Okay. 
you cannot become the doctor until you repent of being the attacker. See, here's the main way we respond to other people's sin. We assume that they're the only sinner in the relationship. That's why it hurts us so bad. How could they do that to me? What have I ever done to them? Right? Our memories are so short in relationship. Our perspective is so skewed. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because the Bible says the first and primary thing sin does is it blinds us. That's why we can be so clear on everybody else's biggest problems and so shocked when people point to our biggest problems. We become blind to our own sin, desensitized, callous. So we have to assume in faith what the Bible says about ourselves, that we're a sinner in need of salvation. And so what we see here is first, we have to take the initiative because we care. In fact, let's talk about that really quickly. Because one of the best ways we defend ourselves th- from doing the right thing is say, well, they're the one who hurt to me. I'll forgive them, but they got to come. they got to come to me. You see, Jesus doesn't talk that way. He basically says whoever's aware of the sin is the one who needs to deal with it. I had a job at Red Robin when I was 16, and we had a policy that I hated. It was whoever sees it, it's their, it's their problem, okay? And what that meant for me as a busser was that I kept my eyes as high as I could and I never walked into the restroom, right? Jesus has the same approach. So he points out, for example, if you are at the altar and you remember that someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother, okay? There, you're the one who's done wrong and you need to stop and make it a priority to set it right. But he also says this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately and tell him about it. And if he repents, you receive back your brother. He says, even if he doesn't respond, go and bring a close friend and bring him into the relationship. Who is the driving actor in that story? The one who's been sinned against. And if you're a Christian this morning, that shouldn't surprise you. Because that's the gospel. That's the big message of what God has done. Despite how we have treated God, despite our own rebellion, God took action to set things right. And you go, but but he's hurt me so bad already, I'm putting myself at risk. What, like coming to earth and being crucified? It's built into the model. It's part and parcel of what's going on. Even when we get to the level of forgiveness... It's the one who's been sinned against who has to bear the cost. That's the only way this goes. There's no time machine. There's no erasing the problem. Forgiveness says, I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. That means you take the cost upon yourself. I love how Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian, illustrates this. He says, if someone walks into your room and knocks over your lamp and you forgive them, it means one of two things. Either you live without without light in that room or you buy yourself another lamp. If we see our sin as monetary, right, if we see it as a debt, then that's the equivalent. It says, I will bear the cost of this. And that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. He says, there's no way to set things right, so I will do it for you. And so loving confrontation cares enough 
to not give up the relationship, to not give up on the person. Cares enough to expose themselves to more pain and to, con- to confront, but it also, it also has an agenda. And the agenda is not to balance the scales, but to restore the relationship. The agenda is not so they know how much they hurt you, but so that the relationship would be rebuilt. But there's a third aspect here. We see it primarily, um, primarily in verse 12. Notice this, he says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. This sounds insane. Paul says lots of things that are hard to understand. This one just sounds incongruent with life. He says, look, I didn't really write this because I was hurt or because you hurt me. I wrote this because I wanted to show you what God is doing in your life. Listen again to how he says it in the end. He says, in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. How earnest does the church in Corinth feel? How earnest do they look in this relationship? They're the ones who harmed. They're the ones who are sitting on their thumbs. Until Paul writes the letter, they're blind in their own ignorance. They don't even know what the problem is. He says, but I did this to show you what you can't even see for yourself. In fact, notice how he continues in verse 13. He says, therefore, we're comforted. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Listen to this. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. Would you expect Paul to be praising the Corinthian congregation as he seals up this letter stained with his own tears and puts it in Titus's hands? He says, I can't wait for you to see what's going to happen, Titus. I'm so excited for you to see what the church is going to do in response to this. Listen to what he goes on, and he says this in verse 14, halfway through. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. See, they, we've talked about three factors, okay? One, you have to care about the sin. You have to let it hurt you. You have to be bothered by it enough to do something about it. Two, you have to do something about it with the motive to set it right. And three, you have to do it in hope. You have to do it in hope. Paul here expects the Corinthian church to respond rightly, not like, you better do the right thing, but he honestly and truly believes with hope in the outcome. And this isn't merely optimism. Okay? See, here's the thing. God says that what he's done in Jesus Christ is so significant that it can actually bring about restoration in relationship. It can actually bring about forgiveness. That it can actually remove those things. See, he's not merely hoping in the Corinthians going, look, I know they didn't really mean it. No, his hope is deeper than that. He hopes in the God who's at work in the Corinthians. Once again, that difference is world apart, worlds apart. Because the truth is, sometimes people do stuff and it's no big deal and you're sure everything's going to be set right. But there are other times when things seem so damaged and so broken. That's not a place without hope for the Christian. 
And part of the reason is because we know what it's like for God to take damaged and broken things and make them new. We've experienced it firsthand. But it's true of our relationships. If God can take the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesus and make them one body and break down hundreds of years of bigotry and isolation and distance, do we really think he can't do it again when those people continue to be themselves? When they continue to bring in sin in the relationship? Is the reconciliation that God offers only available as a one-time offer and then you're on your own? No. See, he hopes not just that the Corinthians will do the right thing, but that God is going to be faithful to continue and finish what he began in them. This thing that the Corinthians did is not merely a slip-up. It's not merely a mistake. It's definitely not out of character. The Bible says sin isn't something that happens to us. It's something we do because of something we are. It's part of your nature. But Paul has enough hope to say, I believe that God can change your nature. I believe he's going to do it. I'm expecting it to happen. And so then he sees this whole thing as being a positive that's worth rejoicing in. Listen to this. It's so counterintuitive. He doesn't just say the relationship can be restored. He sees that it's moving forward in this way. He sees God as drawing them closer to himself and their relationship getting closer, not merely in spite of these things, but because. When Martin Luther effectively began the Reformation by writing these 95 complaints about the Catholic Church and nailing them to the door of his church in Wittenberg, he began that document with this statement. The Christian life is one of continual repentance. And in the context, what he's saying there is he believes in the Catholic Church. He believes in the body of Christ. He believes that God is going to continue the work, and so he's not afraid to draw these things to attention because that's normative for the Christian life. And let's be honest, the reason why loving confrontation is so scary to us is because we never do it. And so what's really scary is if you have a close relationship and a whole bundle of undealt with sin, it sounds like a week-long affair to deal with all of it, to go down the whole roster. But when it's a regular habit of relationship, it's easier. It's like, it's like that app some of you have on your phone, Acorn, where you're investing a little change at a time. Okay? It adds up after a while, but you never have to go, okay, right? It's not in the big numbers anymore. But the thing we have to understand is it's impossible to do this without hope. Because hope determines if you believe the gospel or not. Can you go through the motions of trying to restore a relationship? Absolutely. Can you seek to restore a relationship or confront somebody in sin because you're supposed to? Sure. But what we see happening here is so much deeper than that. Paul believes that the gospel is so good and so true that it can actually fix what's broken. It can actually restore what's been divided. It can actually reconcile what sometimes to us can seem unreconcilable, and that's not because the people in the relationship are so great. It's because the God working in the midst of that relationship is so great. 
That's where Paul's confidence is. That's where his hope is. And see, what I'm saying here is not merely that as Christians we should seek to restore broken relationships, that we should seek reconciliation. I'm not merely saying that we should deal with interpersonal sin. I'm saying that we can. I'm saying that we can. I'm saying that what God has done in Jesus Christ is so significant that those relationships actually can not merely be restored, but restored to growth and love and true unity and fellowship. And so Paul bears the pain of this like Jesus does on the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame on the cross, the author of Hebrews says. It doesn't mean these things aren't hard. It doesn't mean they're not painful. It doesn't mean they're not tremendously vulnerable. They're all those things. But they're also incredibly good. We talked earlier in our catechism about how we glorify God. When sin is properly responded to and dealt with in the church, it demonstrates the truth of the gospel. What's writ large on the cross of Christ is displayed in the fine print of our lives. People look at things and they go, how did you get through that? Why are you still together? Sometimes we bring forgiveness like this to people who do not yet know Christ and they go, hold on, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. Why would you? And we have an opportunity to share the gospel. But that only happens with hope. Some of you who are into apologetics, defending Christianity, have a key verse out of Peter's letters when he says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. But do you know the context of that passage? It's suffering unjustly. That's the context. That's everything Peter's talking about. And he says, when you suffer unjustly and bear it, when you don't lose your joy in the things that would destroy other people, when you continue on, people are going to ask and they're going to go, why are you so hopeful? I've put those cards on the back table. And you could use them to lovingly confront someone. I almost wrote you instructions to do so. I decided not to. And the reason's really simple. It's because when it comes to that, Jesus didn't just write a letter. He didn't try and put it in words. The Bible is full of God's expression of invitation that all things can be made new. Come to me and I will make your sins whiter than snow. Come to me, you without bread and you without drink, and buy and eat without money. But the greatest way he said it was incarnational. It was in the flesh. But I will also add that you will be better at doing that Contra Jesus, you will be better at doing that if you practice asking for forgiveness. If you are the initiator in your own sin. If you deal with the log in your eye first. And so I would really, really encourage you during these two weeks to practice. Not just practice what we preach. To practice in the sense of get better at this because this should be the day-to-day of Christian relationships of not allowing sin to cause division, destruction, or death because we believe in resurrection. Let's pray.
Father, we, we see how Paul takes these things and then we go back over his words and suddenly we understand why he says that God makes all things new. Suddenly we understand when he begs and implores, be reconciled unto God because God has reconciled us to himself. We look back over these things and we see the contrast between the old covenant and the law and the new covenant because you've given us your spirit and so that brings about change. It's not just the law that restrains us from sin, Lord, but it's the spirit in us that produces obedience, that's changing us from the inside out. And because of this, Lord, we don't need to be afraid of sin in our relationships. We don't need to abandon the relationships that seem broken. We can not just rebuild, Lord, not not just restore, but we can actually see new life where there was death. The psalmist says, oh, how happy is the man who is forgiven and his sins are not held against him. God, I pray that we would desire happiness for ourselves and for others enough that we would do the work of loving confrontation. That we would constantly affirm to those around us a relationship with you is worth is worth it. And God, because I know that we very rarely are sinned against without sinning ourselves, and I know that that sin leads to blindness, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the relationships we've abandoned, to the ongoing relationships where sin still lies dormant and undealt with, to the places where, uh, where we don't believe the gospel is true, It's true here and there, but not here. This door remains locked. This relationship remains untouched. This is too big for the cross of Christ. God, you you told us not that unforgiveness was the unforgivable sin when you said that he who does not forgive will not be forgiven, but you clearly told us that unforgiveness is a sin that needs to be repented of. Pry open our hands, Lord, away from the scepter of our kingdom. Draw us to our knees, down off the slope of our man-made throne and right to the slope of Calvary. And fill us with love for the people around us. We ask that you would do this and we ask it in hope, knowing that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus' name we pray, amen.